Welcome. You are listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue podcast, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's better to hear it live, this is the place to catch the latest sermon, conversation, and select program. If you like what you're hearing or want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get a notification for our next episode. Enjoy and see you in shul. Shabbat Shalom. Lest anyone ever wonder, with regard to the war taking place in Gaza, my views can be distilled into a single sentence. Give me back the hostages, and then we can talk. In the four months since Hamas's inhuman October 7th attacks on Israel, as Israel has fought a war in Gaza, as the situation in the north against Hezbollah heats up, I have developed more, not less, moral clarity. I think of the atrocities committed by Hamas that day. I recall the sights and smells when many of us visited the burnt-out communities in Israel's south, when we heard the first-hand testimony of the survivors, we are aware of the brazen manner by which the perpetrators filmed their atrocities on their GoPro cameras and then proudly uploaded their acts of terror onto their social media accounts. Hamas officials are on the record saying that if given the opportunity, they will repeat such assaults over and over again until Israel is exterminated. Not an hour passes that I don't think about the hostages, men, women, babies, 128 days and counting, no contact or communication with the outside world, their condition unknown, their future in the balance, and based on the testimony of the hostages who were released, subjected, subjected to unspeakable acts of physical, psychological, and serial sexual violence. Hamas's cynical tactic of hiding behind the human shields of innocent Palestinians in hospitals, in schools, and otherwise has been revealed to the world, as have the hundreds of miles of tunnels testimony to Hamas's decades-long misuse of international funds intended to aid the Palestinian people. I pieced together the attacks from Gaza, from the south, from the north, the attacks from the Houthis in Yemen, and I reject any David, Goliath, oppressed, oppressor, liberator, colonialist narrative. The actions of Iran and its proxies make clear that it is the destruction of Israel, not the liberation of the Palestinians, that is their goal. And I know what is being said on the front pages of the newspapers, on social media, on college campuses, in the International Court of Justice, and here in the streets of Manhattan. I see the tide of world opinion shifting against Israel. Israel named as the aggressor, naming the, denying the very attacks of October 7th, ignoring the plight of the captives, denouncing Israel's war on Hamas as unjust, 
calling for Palestine to be freed and Israel to be destroyed and threatening Jews around the world behind the flag of Palestinian self-determination. I see it all, I hear it all, and in the midst of it all, my moral compass is steady, the rightness of my path resolute. I stand by Israel's right to self-determination and self-defense. I stand by the IDF's campaign to root out Hamas, free the captives, and, in the, and secure Israel's future. It is the textbook definition of a war of obligation. I mourn the loss of every Israeli civilian and every Israeli soldier. I mourn the loss of every innocent Palestinian. I am heartbroken at the Palestinian lives, disruptive, destroyed, or displaced. Every life is created equally and in the infinite dignity of a God of all of creation. Any displays of smug celebration in the face of human suffering, as was reported this past week, are obscene and should be shut down without delay. To not be, to not be heartbroken is to be inhuman. As a believing Jew, I believe that God, God's self, is shedding tears for all of God's children in this dark hour. And my belief in, my prayers for, and my pursuit of peace is unwavering. Give me back the hostages and then we can talk. These are my views, clear, unequivocal, and steadfast. These are the views of the synagogue I lead. We hold these truths to be self-evident and as a community we give expression to them educationally, philanthropically, and politically by any and every means available to us. But my leadership challenge, my leadership challenge is not figuring out what I stand for. That much I am clear. My challenge is a question of those whose positions are not my own. Those people for whom the truths that I hold to be self-evident are not self-evident at all. And here I'm not talking about the enemies of Israel and the Jewish people. For them and their kind, I have no patience. My question pertains to those individuals within the fold, Jews and often non-Jews, whose views, whose sympathies, whose histories differ from mine. People questioning who is really to blame, past and present, for the conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians. People wondering at what cost of Palestinian life, or for that matter, Israeli life, shall this war be prosecuted. People asking, if calls for a ceasefire need necessarily be understood as a betrayal of the cause. Not even a hostile world court could bring itself to call Israel's actions genocide. But what is the point that Israel crosses a line from a just to an unjust war? If prior to October 7th, cynicism regarding the Israeli government and criticism of Israeli policy reflected the views of a good portion of American Jewry and half of the Israeli electorate, are all such criticisms now to be rendered trafe, even and especially when that self-same government and self-same policies remain in effect? These questions, amongst others, 
It's not so much that they are my questions that I personally am kept up at night by them, but they are my questions in the sense that they are being asked by the children and grandchildren of my congregation, literally and figuratively, by good Jews throughout the community, not by those who preach from this pulpit, but by those who have been called up to this pulpit over the years, products of this synagogue and like-minded synagogues, many of whom staff and will staff, fund and will fund the coming Jewish generation, the proudly Jewish Hillel board member who is on a hunger strike in solidarity with Palestinian suffering, the 23-year-old programming associate working at a JCC who just signed a petition calling for a ceasefire, the Jewish social activist who wants to repair the world yesterday and believes that it is because they are Jewish, not only do they have the right, but the obligation to call out perceived wrongs committed by the Jewish state. I know where I stand and where my community stands, but how do we stand with those members of our broader community who stand for something else? It's a leadership question, not just for me, but for all of us, and I mean all of us, here today. When preaching to his community, the 19th century rabbi Israel Salanter would begin by stating, all that I am doing is speaking aloud to myself. If anything you might overhear also applies to you, well and good. It's in that spirit that I offer a few thoughts, a few rules on how to respond to that squirm-inducing moment when you encounter a view different from your own. Rule number one, breathe, breathe, and breathe again. You may, you may be breathing the same air as a person in front of you, but you inhabit different worlds. It was a French essayist, Valéry, who once commented that everyone is fated to live in the time into which they are born. You might have come of age under the shadow of the Shoah, the war in 67 or 73, but that sparring partner in front of you did not. A 25-year-old knows nothing of the history of Arab rejectionism. They know only a post-Oslo, post-Intifada, Abraham Accord signing, startup nation Israel in control of who gets access and what piece of land. It doesn't make it right, nor for that matter does it make it true, but it is that person's truth. And it's not just a matter of age, the time into which a person is born. It's the information itself in a digital era. And this is a topic for another day. The sources informing a person's reality are different than yours. Their news is not your news. Their social media feed is not yours. So judge that person with a generosity of spirit, knowing that while you may disagree, even vehemently so, their views do not reflect evil, ill will, or self-hate. They believe what they believe because they believe it to be so. Rule number one, breathe and breathe again. So if that's rule number one, what is rule number two? As a camp verse goes, next verse, same as the first. Breathe, 
and breathe again. In many ways, being a rabbi is like being a parent. Sometimes the hardest and most important thing to do is to sit on your hands and do absolutely nothing. I have four children, college age, and some days my life feels like a Passover Seder. The calls home from campus reflecting views that run the gamut, sometimes to my right and sometimes to my left, and sometimes, oftentimes of late, reflecting a college kid so overwhelmed by it all, they don't even know the questions to ask. Not everyone in this room is a parent, but everyone in the room has a parent, which means that everyone in this room knows that if you get into the business of thought police, some sort of gotcha game of tearing into anyone who steps out of line, you risk having precisely the opposite effect as you intended. Besides, as I see it, the goal of parenting and community building is not to create uniformity of thought. The goal, as evidenced by the Seder table itself, is to create independent thinkers who are able to sit together respectfully year in and year out. It's not about coddling. Not every idea is given an airing. Neither my home nor the synagogue is governed by the First Amendment. But within the guardrails, in the case of our discussion, the desire for a secure Jewish and democratic state, we all know that there is more than one way to get there. There are questions that can and should be debated. To topple Hamas or to secure the release of the hostages, at what price of life should Israel fight this war? Can one support Israel's right to self-determination and still object to its government? These questions are not betrayals. These questions are being debated by Israelis in real time, Israelis who, unlike almost all of us in this room, are sending their children into harm's way, not knowing if or when they will return. And counterintuitive as it stands, it is especially at a moment like ours that left-leaning organizations, even if their views are not yours or mine, play an important role. The conversations have changed these past months. The overtone window, the spectrum of acceptable discourse has shifted leftward, leaving those Jews once sitting on the progressive pale of the Jewish community now branded as sellouts by the radical left for supporting even the idea of Jewish self-determination. Ironically, it's those people and organizations who have proven credentials in progressive circles who have a fighting chance to find allies for the Jewish people. You don't need to hug them, but now is positively not the time to scold, chastise, or rebuke them for giving expressions to views different than your own. Breathe and breathe again. We have real enemies to fight. Waste no energy picking someone off from within our own ranks. Rule number one and two were straightforward enough. I think you're ready for the third and final rule. Ready? Breathe and breathe again. And now ask an inquiring question. You've encountered an idea different from your own. Mazel tov. It's a feeling that leaves you feeling uncomfortable, bristling, and maybe even angry. 
Rule number one taught us to presume positive intent. Rule number two taught us that we don't believe in thought police. Now engage, ask a question or two or three in such a way that it might prompt that person to interrogate their own position. I'll give you a few. I hear your calls for a ceasefire, and I want peace as much as you. But don't you think that your demands for a ceasefire, if they were preceded by a demand for the release of the hostages, would be practically or morally stronger? Or you could ask, I understand your outrage over proportionality. It's a right question to ask. But let me ask you, how do you explain the fact that the same people calling Israel to account for war crimes cannot bring themselves to name the atrocities of October 7th. Or you could ask, I get it, as a progressive you see the sufferings of the Palestinians as part of a bigger struggle. Why can't women's advocacy groups, the first rule of which is to believe women's stories, even bring themselves to call out the sexual violence of October 7th? Why do all lives matter, except when they're Jewish lives? Or you could say, I hear you chanting for the liberation of the Palestinians. I believe in a two-state solution as well. But help me understand, when do those chants champion Palestinian self-determination, and when do they call for the destruction of the Jewish state and the death of Jews? It's not clear to me. Is it clear to you? And if it isn't, then maybe we can think twice before marching with people behind that slogan. Or you could say, I know you want peace. I do too. But tell me, how can Israel make peace with a people whose founding charter and recent statements call for Israel's destruction? How exactly is Israel supposed to make peace with a non-democratic terrorist organization aimed at its destruction? It's not clear to me. Maybe you can explain that to me. I have a million questions I can give you to give to someone else. But as with all things in life, more important than what you say is how you say it. A well-placed question will challenge. A well-placed question will force a person to emerge from their tired and toxic slogans and social media feeds. A well-placed question will help you figure out if the intent of the person in front of you is coming from a place of ignorance, ill will, or otherwise. A well-placed question can build dialogue and trust. You may or may not change someone's mind. You may or may not have your own mind changed, but you will have situated that person's views in their humanity, and equally, if not more important, you will have situated your views in your humanity. The exchange itself may not even get you anywhere, but it will exist in the minds of the person before they post their next post, attend their next rally, or engage with their friends whose views make their views seem positively pleasant. It's not everything, but it is something. And needless to say, it is labor intensive. There are no shortcuts here. Challenging and changing hearts and minds happens one-on-one. -on -one. It's a retail business, hand-to-hand -hand combat in every sense. But it's a role that we can and all must play to pick up a post and get engaged at all times, and especially 
in these times. Of all the laws of our Torah reading, perhaps the most surprising occurs towards the end, when our obligations against our adversaries are enumerated. When you encounter your foe's donkey or oxen, you must return them. When you see your enemy's animal burdened, you shall give it release. A set of laws unexpectedly on how to relate to those not with whom we agree, but disagree. Onkelos, the Aramaic translator of our text, interprets these laws not to refer to physical burdens, but to psychological ones, not to beasts of burdens, but to ourselves. In other words, if we are to create community, if we are to move forward, we must learn to let go of the hatred in our hearts. I know what I believe in. Those who hold views different to my own are decidedly not my enemies. In many cases, they are mishpacha, family. And family is family. We breathe, we make room for each other, we engage in each other's views. We ask good questions and we listen to each other's answers, lifting up hearts, lifting up each other during this challenging time. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. See you in shul. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.